0: A number of years ago, a Buddhist relics tour came to Berkeley. Buddhist relics are when some great teacher or some great master dies and is cremated, and then they take maybe some of the ashes or there might be some bits of bone that didn't completely incinerate, and they're gathered and collected, and then they might be put in... Maybe like an urn and end up in a stupa and then it can be a place where people can come to recollect and remember and get inspiration and devotion and uh, you know respect that can happen and on the on this relics tour they had um, there were little very they had these small glass clear glass bowls and there were small little, very small little pieces, almost little flecks or just it was just little bits there, the relics. So I went to the tour, and um, it was wonderful going there. Uh, it was at the Shambhala Center in Berkeley, and it was all an open space so you could see everything, but around the sides it was kind of like risers. I don't think you'd say bleachers, but it wasn't that big, but risers. So you could come in, there This beautiful music playing, and you'd sit around up there as long as you wanted until you were ready to go down, and they had this little gate you'd go through and to go to the relics. And I spent some time hanging out there, and it was just so heart-opening just to, of course, the beautiful music, but seeing everybody coming in such an open-hearted way. People from many different uh, Buddhist traditions were there, and you could tell because of the monastics who came, men and women, all these different robes, colors, and styles. And when they would bow, all the different bows, you know, some would bow and maybe the hands would be clasped. I noticed there's a style where people would bow and the hands would kind of come out. And so you could see it all these different traditions. But everybody had come together kind of in a common love of the dharma and appreciation for these great masters who were there in the relics. And the differences just, it just didn't matter everybody. There were even people there um, out of different traditions. I, if I think there might, I believe there was a man, who, you know, his tradition, he was uh, sitting under a pyramid and had some um, crystals hanging. So he had, t- that was his path or way so it's just like everyone's welcome and we're just all here in this open-hearted loving way so even before you went in to see the relics your heart was and your mind was uh, malleable and wieldy you were just in a really nice receptive place so then when you're ready you go down through the gate and um, they do a little prayer or mantra for each person and sprinkle you with some special water. So it just is this purification and just had this lovely feeling. So by the time you come around and you come up, you know, you're really going through this whole process to kind of prepare your mind to come to the first relic. Now I have to tell you that um, I, uh, I don't, in my mind, I don't know this, but I don't believe they're actually real from, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. It's, you know, not a negative thing. but I'm, And I don't know that. And you can, uh, there's a reason why I'm adding this in, as you'll see in a moment. Um, you know, you can have a belief and know it's a belief and still really believe it. That's how it is for me. I believe it. I don't know if it's true. So I can hold my belief more lightly. And then we don't have to get into battles with each other about being right or wrong or anything like that. But that's, I have to say, I was coming in with that attitude. Not an attitude, but if you were to ask me. And I walk up, and there's the first relic, and they had um, labels, Shakyamuni Buddha. <laughs> and it hit me <laughs> in this visceral, that's our Buddha, Shakyamuni means the sage of the uh, Shakyan clan. And I have to tell you, in any way that mattered, in any way that had any meaning at all, that's the real thing. It it was so alive, and I think that's the whole point, of it just brought in my mind, you know, we can think of these great masters or teachers sort of in antiquity, and they can seem so remote and up on the mountaintop, and it's not even like they're almost not real, right? Or or not real, but like real people who are as real as this is, right? And it just brought that out. It was almost like I could smell the smells in the air uh, or the heat or whatever it was to be there at the time when the Buddha... It just brought it alive for me. Um, And so that was just very impactful in a way i just thought it would be nice to go and you know but it really was quite moving um, and inspiring next bowl there's ananda (laughs) (laughs) right there in the bowl (laughs) and as we said ananda was i think you all remember was the buddha's younger cousin and had been the buddha's personal attendant during the last 25 years of the buddha's life and i believe just Uh, I think I said, sometimes my memory's not good, I hope I'm not repeating that, when you read in the suttas, when quite a number of them start with, thus have I heard, that's actually Ananda recounting, because he'd been around through all the teachings for 25 years. So that's Ananda speaking with you. So to me, that's that same feeling of bringing it alive. Ananda's here speaking to me. So there he is, that's Ananda. Next bowls. Sariputta and Maha <laughs> Those were the Buddha's two chief disciples. <laughs> and then my personal uh, favorite was next, Kondonya. And some of you may know, but this was, i he's like my personal favorite character. Uh, I think many of you know the story, but I'll just very briefly, When after the Buddha's enlightenment, it is said that when he first taught, he... Excuse me, when he first taught, he came back to what is called the group of five ascetics. Uh, when he was, in the, and they were, the, they were these five people that he pra- practiced extreme, like self mortification, ascetic practices with. And if you actually see statues or images of the Buddha where his body looks his skeletal, that's the ascetic Buddha before his enlightenment and um then of course he left the he he realized that self-mortification and asceticism didn't lead to the result he wanted and he went through this whole, the whole story of how he moved in another direction <clears throat> and so it's said that he came back and the very f- this, according to the to the tradition and the text the very first teaching he gave there's a sutta and it's called um setting in motion or turning the wheel of the dharma in which he taught the middle way between the extremes of this extreme asceticism and indulgence and se- sense ple- pleasure so you find a middle way and then he taught um, uh, the four the four noble truths um, and at the end of that teaching of the five ascetics it is said that uh, I don't remember the exact quote but I think the Dharma eye opened for Kondonya And he had this deep, penetrating, direct, profound awakening to that, not as a concept, I'm going to say it as a concept, but he actually got it viscerally. All things that arise pass away. If it's of a nature to arise, it's of a nature to pass away. He got that deeply. And then at the end, the Buddha and I don't remember if it was a question, if he's asking Kondonya or if he's saying it as a declaration, but uh, it's, if, if, the way I remember the sutta was, it's like almost with exclamation points. Kondonya, has got it, he's got it. And it was a big deal. So Kondonya, according to tradition, was the first person to come to this deep awakening from the Buddha. And then the stories go on that eventually all five ascetics Uh, get it and then it said then there were six arahants in the world so it's really a big deal with those guys so there's Kondonya right there Um, And I'll just add a little bit more and I'll move on here Then it was moving away from the really early Buddhism into some of the later figures in later Indian Buddhism so Nagarjuna right there Now, Nagarjuna is very, very important. Again, uh, in later stages of of Indian Buddhism, very, very important figure. I want to be careful here, but I would say particularly in Vajrayana, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, maybe other traditions. Nagarjuna is interesting. I think in some traditions, he's probably second only to the Buddha, perhaps, uh, when you read some of the old uh, texts in different traditions. Scholars actually debate whether there actually even was a... Uh, I don't think part practitioners think this way, but actually there's scholarly debates whether he actually existed or whether there was even more than one Nagarjuna. But he's a very, very important figure, and some of his texts are uh, quite inspiring and moving, if you're ever interested, to read some of the translations. And then just a few more to name. Milarepa, Atisha, Talopa. These were even later Indian, and I, I think... Maybe you would call that part of um, uh, Tantric Buddhism, not the same as kind of yogic Tantra, but so they were in that tradition. And then finally, the one I'll just mention here, it came up to present time, Lama Yeshi. Now I know uh, probably those really were the real relics because he is a contemporary. He's been dead for some number of decades, but actually he's in the Santa Cruz Mountains at Vajrapani. He was cremated there, and they have a stupa for him there, and he was the teacher in that tradition. So... Um, So, a few things about this um, that hit me, um, uh, especially, um, I think what really struck me is how alive, as as I was saying, it brought the sense of the great masters, the great men and women who've come before us. And, um, you know, when the Buddha taught, it was like this, I mean, of course they didn't have, we don't really know, but wouldn't, probably didn't have a, this fancy, you know, modern, like that. It, maybe I, I envision kind of sitting under a tree in the dirt, maybe, or maybe there were dwellings they would go inside too, so it was different that way. But it was, a, there was a person just like this, and listeners just like this. This is how real it was in that moment, right? So that's how it was when the Buddha taught. And the suttas are filled with stories of people and hearing these teachings, just like Kondonya is, a, is the first example. And then just in, in the hearing of those teachings, some great opening or shift or enlightenment came, whether they became what we'd call an arhat, maybe you'd say fully enlightened, or they became, there's these other, we haven't talked about here, stream entry or different, but they, let's just say something very profound shifted and opened them just from hearing the teachings there's many stories like that now the the buddha certainly uh, must have had a very profound presence just must have um, i may I think i mentioned in my first talk here i can't remember but that uh, i have met a handful of people i did because i i named uh, um, um, Sidal dal is one and goinka or two I can name off the top of my head, that I met, and there was a palpable presence there. And I was not particularly, I don't, didn't practice in their style. Of course, they had very different styles. But I knew what that person has, that's what I want. I don't know what it is, but there's, there's really a, again, it's like a palpable presence. Something is powerful here. So you can be in the present like that, something that can be very moving. And so, um, uh, but it's also said that the Buddha had psychic powers. So, uh, you know, he could. so he could know, like, well, what was most uh, useful for this group or for this person to help them on their path to awakening? Um, so I think all of that's true. However, I imagine that in addition to all of that, if you thought right now that um, the actual Buddha was here teaching you right now, I'm guessing the quality of all of our listening would probably be on a whole nother level. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so I actually wasn't going for a laugh on that, but... Uh, <laughs> But, for, but think about it, really, right? It's like, uh, what's the level of receptiveness that we might bring? And so I, I like to think and I believe that part of that is what we, not just what the great master may have whether to, to offer us, but the level of openness and receiving that we bring uh, to meet that Uh, is a big piece. And I think this gets back into kind of this thing we've brought up here on the retreat uh, several times, this idea of life is your teacher, every moment in your teacher. It's kind of that idea, but uh, maybe, you know, supercharged if we can bring our our depth of our listening or or receptiveness or presence to hear the teachings. And so um, that's something I want to explore a little tonight. Um, so then, what is the message of these great masters, these great men and women who've come before us? This is what I want to spend some time exploring uh, together this evening. Um, these teachings have been transmitted in an unbroken chain to us for, you know, we don't know the exact dates of the Buddha, and uh, I don't know what the latest scholarly thing is, but. I've heard some people say 2,600, 2,500 years ago, whatever, roughly. These have been translated, in, tr- transmitted to us in an unbroken chain. We are the living link in that chain. Right? Not just people sitting up here. All of us, we are the living link in the chain. We are the students of the previous generation. We, you are the elders of the next generation. It's not anybody else. It's us. It's really each. each. I'm looking at you. <laughs> Me too. All of us. It's for us to come to a real awakening. And isn't it true? We're here doing this practice. We don't want to just read about other people getting enlightened. We're here doing this work, right? We want that for ourselves, right? Or we wouldn't be here. And we wouldn't have hung in through all the ups and downs and everything. There's something really deep and profound that's alive in us that has us here. So we are doing that work. But that is what we're, we're called upon. The Dharma life is calling, up, calling us and we've answered the call. Right? So to live, right, you know, um, um, I think most people are good people. Some people, and everybody, I don't judge anybody's uh, at all, uh, I'm very, <laughs> that would be pretty arrogant, right, for me to say what someone's life should be about and what their highest values should be. But since my highest values happen to be Dharma values, that's my value system, I happen to have a, a special appreciation for people who se- share that set of values. And so here we all all are. Um, A phrase I've used on this retreat and again you have to find your own but I'm just offering up that the way I and really everybody I've been working with in the interviews and everything these are you we are people who want to live in a way that creates less and less suffering in this world for ourselves for sure and for others and we want to create more well-being that's what we want our life to be that's the our legacy Right. In the future, we talk about impermanence, and we know uh, everything. You know, this center won't exist forever. They'll come someday, and there won't even be any trace that it even existed, or that any of us existed. Nobody's going to remember me. Right. So, what I find a value, and I think probably many of us find a value, is what is a value then, and that's the legacy that we leave. The quality of, uh, of uh, aiming ourselves in these wholesome, I like the word beautiful. That's just for me. Uh, really beautiful hearts and minds in the directions we want to go, right? Um, sometimes we can think of this term enlightenment we use as being something very far away. And we use this word. Nirvana in Sanskrit, Nibbana. And I'll just share with you, and this may not apply to you, but for myself, I actually don't tend to think so much in terms of the Nibbana in my mind because we just want to be careful that it doesn't pull us out of right here and right now. So I don't know about all that, but I'm very interested in this moment-to-moment taking the liberation through non-clinging as far as I can, taking the, 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 this loving, good heart as far as I can. I don't want to um, uh, say, well, I want to free myself from clinging to here, but at this point on, it's okay to cling. That's okay with me. I want to take as far as I can. So for me, it brings it right back to the immediacy of here so that it's not a question of, well, can I come to awakening like it's something off in the future? That it's something alive right here. We're in it. We are are it. We're living it. And so um, we want to just stay attuned to that so we don't get caught in because... Um, one of the things I've been hearing today, its uh, in the last couple of days, uh, for several people expressing concerns about, I'll share a, a story that uh, I think it was one of my very first uh, meditation retreats, a 10-day retreat. And I remember leaving it in tears as I'm driving away, um, grieving over the beautiful meditative states I was about to lose after spending 10 days practicing non-clinging, I was clinging worse than ever as I drove away, and worried, and can I keep it up, and I'm gonna fall into my old ways and everything. And I got stirred up in all that. And right then, um, it's pulling me right, I mean, it's not pulling me out of the moment, because that is what's happening in the moment, right? But the stir up in my mind was all this worry and, and the story I was creating But what was true for me then, regardless of how much mindfulness I had or didn't, how much, whatever, samadhi, how much metta, whatever we want to, our yardstick is, is, that what was true for me, and I think it's true for, I hope, all of us, is that when I got lost and caught, I couldn't do anything about it because I didn't even know I was gone, right? And when I was present, and I actually knew what was happening, I knew I was going to do the best I could, as I could, to work as skillfully as I can in a good direction. And I, I'll be more or less skillful as, 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 I, as I could be. I think we're sharing that exactly with the great masters. I see no difference. None. Isn't that what the great masters would do? If... They were lost. Now how much is the great master lost? I'm not getting into that. What can they do? If the great master is awake and present and knowing, has mindfulness and clear comprehension in the moment, what's the great master going to do? He or she, they are going to use their best skillful means to act in a way that's wise and skillful. We're no different from them. We're not less than at all. We've all got it. So I want to ask you to reflect on your own life now, I invite you to, and think back. You know, we've all have, every one of us have our areas, our, in lives that are, we've, we're kind of free. And we all have areas in our lives that we have our struggles. See if you can think back over the course of your life to something, one thing where you really used to suffer a lot and maybe in that one area you can say, you know I don't suffer as badly as I used to, it's a little better any better than it used to be just your natural set point every one of us has that and if you can't find it for real not trying to make a joke come talk to me or anyone afterwards I'll help you we all have that every one of us does have something sometimes it's covered over no not me not me we all can that is real growth it's not that you can't grow that's real fruit that you can look to and see where you've shifted towards the wholesome here and now so it goes back to this idea that the Buddha is here and now if we could open to the teachings so we talked about again this idea of you know, you could try on the attitude of uh, all of life is your teacher. Right? We've been saying that every moment your teacher. Here's another one you can try on. I don't know. It's just thought experiment. Imagine that everyone fully enlightened. Well, but you. everything they're doing is to help you wake up now I have to be careful because I just realized as I said that uh, some of us have been treated in ways that have been pretty nasty Uh, so I guess my thought experiment just kind of crumbled there because I don't think that's helping you wake up (laughs) right to be honest with you so we got to I apologize if I triggered anyone off with that. Who said, well wait a minute, I don't, not when they did this and I think that's important to validate. That's real and that's important. But I think you get the idea, maybe we can carry it. Let's just say in ways to just when that's not when we're not having that kind of level, but then like all the people here on retreat who are walking around and bothering you or um, uh, <laughs> whatever <laughs> You know, not that they, they should, you know, but wow, everybody's here enlightened and doing what they're doing here. Uh, for my awakening, it's just an experiment. You can take it on and see uh, how it might shift Then I've actually tried it. Just take it for an hour. It's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I, I found it, but you have to see yourself. Again, one of the things, and this went back to my the talk on my first night. I think I said something. We want to be careful about how we to judge, uh, evaluate, I should say, ourselves and our practice by how, like, well or poorly, good or bad, we think we're manifesting or doing it, whatever you think it is. I want to um, tell you a story. Um, I used to do a lot of work in prison dharma work. Uh, Way back in the early and mid-'70s, I was part of what was called the um, Prison ashram project. I think that was Bolazov. Uh, Ramdas was connected in there. I was part of. Actually lived in an ashram here in in Marin, and it was uh, 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 prison ashram project West Coast. I was going into San Quentin back then uh, when it was a level four, and it was serious business. So uh, I used to do a lot of that. Not so much anymore. And I actually have started down in Salinas Valley. Uh, There's Salinas Valley State Prison and Men's Correctional Training Facility, two separate prisons, but they're right next to each other. I I was the Buddhist chaplain volunteer position in both those prisons for uh, this volunteer thing for uh, a number of years. And um, those programs are still going. Now, I tell you this because Salinas Valley State Prison is a level four. It's like a Pelican Bay thing. Rough place. We had our Dharma group that met every week. Sometimes there'd be violent incidents where they would have a lockdown until they got it all settled down and figured out. And then these guys, men's prison I was going into, were locked in their cells. It could go for a few days, a few weeks. Sometimes it might go a couple of months. And they were fed in their cells and then they would come out to bathe and everything. But they were in there, right? And we would go, go in then and visit them, go door to door to the cells. And, you know, some of them were managing it, managing okay. Some of them not, right? Couldn't run our group though. So at the end of the two months, this this time of the lockdown, we came back and um, we all met together. We went around saying, how are you doing? And it was just touching into people and what, you know, how are we all together? How can we support each other? And then I said, well, how's your, how's your meditation practice going? One guy said, I, I don't know. I, I just couldn't find time to meditate (laughs) I love that story it's one of my favorite because it's like this isn't it it can be this way so we want to be careful that that it's the human condition even you know like what's he doing in there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it was just so authentic and so real and so human and I could relate so for us you know um, whether it's hard here or at some point we now or in the next month when we're heading back home there'll be the whole thing like can I keep this up what am I doing and and we have to be kind to ourselves we have to know that we're doing the best we can and these forces that pull us are real Uh, my father, you know, my father, I wish my memory is better. I can't tell which stories i told in my other talks. I'm probably, I, I don't even know if I'm repeating, so. Uh, for My father was an infantryman in World War II. So uh, it landed in on the beaches of Normandy about two weeks after D-Day, fought through the Ardans and the whole thing. And um, so it was, you know, formative for his whole life. And uh, I grew up watching World War II movies with my dad. So to this day, if there's a World War II movie, the pull's there. Doesn't matter if it... So when I used to work in Silicon Valley, I was an engineer there for a lot of years. It'd be Sunday night. I um, I was tired. It was late. Wasn't ready to go to bed. Too tired to read, whatever. And I never watched a lot of TV, but I'd turn on the TV. Just a... Turn off my brain. Flipping around. Oh no, it's a World War II movie. (laughs) I say, Shankman, turn it off. You're going to be too tired to meditate in the morning. Okay, I'll just watch a little more. It's a real pull. That's a real energy, right? Um, And um, plus I've seen it three times and it's it's a bad movie. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm even telling myself nothing's actually happening they're not like charging up to take that hill there's a director yelling action and cut (laughs) it's not happening and i'm there next thing you know two o'clock in the morning i'm turning it off and i go to bed and i didn't meditate that next day right so before we can start to uh, make these choices in ways like, that's not really how I guess I would want to spend my time, except, if I'm really honest, no, that is how I want to spend my time, because that's how I spent my time. So when we go out, we want to recognize that we're all doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can here on retreat and in life. Okay, so it's like this. I want to give you good news and bad news. First, uh, the bad news. You're doing the best, and it looks like this. You're doing your best, and it looks like this. Now the good news. The good news. You're doing your best. It looks like this. <laughs> and then people will say, no, no, you don't understand. I really am. I'm too lazy. I'm too, I could do better. No, you can't. How you're showing up, including watching the World War II movie until two in the morning, is how it is. Now, I can work with that and make changes and do it. But uh, here's one of the things that, you know, we've got these conditioned patterns. I imagine if you take a, a, a large, a huge oil tanker out in the middle of the ocean, and it's loaded with oil. So these things are what, how long? few hundred feet long or I don't know a few hundred yards I don't know they're big heavy and you're heading in a certain direction if you want to turn you don't turn like that Uh, you have to plan way ahead I'm guessing right because you've got a lot of momentum moving in a certain direction so if you want to turn by a certain point you probably have to start way ahead and you turn, and then slowly it starts lumbering maybe a little around. Eventually it gets going in a new direction, and now it's got the power and momentum in that new direction. It doesn't turn like that. Our conditioned patterns have been, we've been practicing these for a lifetime, or if you believe in Buddhist cosmology, lifetimes. They don't turn in a moment. And we judge ourselves because these patterns are there. Um, and I love the story from Ajahn Chah um, about growing a chili bush. He says, if you want to grow a chili bush, you, um, you plant the seeds, prepare the soil, plant the seeds, water it, protect it from insects. You've done your part. How fast or slow it grows, that's not up to you. That's up to nature. He said, but in our meditation, we expect to plant the seed and have it grow flower and produce chilies in one day. <laughs> So we have to take the the bigger view, right? And know that we're on this path. We're all deeply committed on this path. right? And so these conditioned patterns that tend to drive us and that come up or we judge ourselves, you know, they really are like little computer programs that got programmed in our, in us. And it's sort of like you've got the icons on your screen. I'm old school. I don't know what it is now. Everything's kind of like Google Sheets and everything. But I was back like Microsoft Word and Excel, so hopefully at least know what that is. (laughs) If you click on the Excel icon, you're never going to get Word. Excel is going to come up every time. (laughs) And so when the right causes and conditions come to light up certain neural pathways and trigger off those patterns, the program's kicked off it's just all it knows how to do our judging minds the poor thing that's all it knows how to do is judge it's not doing anything wrong that's what it does it's a pattern so next time it shows up thank it for sharing (laughs) give it a seat right there you can sit right there right but we don't have to have to buy into all that right All of the great masters had their doubts, their failings, their shortcomings, their struggles, their stories. You can go back and read in many of these traditions. Um, they were like us. Right? They're like us, they all had that. And they applied themselves, they did the work and they were able to start shifting the, these patterns Without judging ourselves, and and so we can take that uh, we can take the inspiration from those great men and women who've come before us. Right, we can have some gratitude and appreciation from those who've come before us, but of gratitude and appreciation for, for ourselves, not ego, but just appreciation for being a, for being for stepping in to your rightful role as the living link in the chain. We're not talking about ego here. We're talking about something more deeply enlightened. It's very humbling. It's very humbling. It's not not puffing ourselves up. Until we're Buddhas ourselves, until our names are on the labels, by those bowls, (laughs) by definition, you are not doing anything wrong, we still have places of greed, hatred, and delusion in us. By definition. It's not doing anything wrong. So we just have to acknowledge that when they come. Um, You know, we've all messed it up or fallen down a thousand times. i will just let you know ahead of time. You're going to, the way of speaking, you're going to not be perfect a thousand more times. So now you know ahead of time. The mes- message of the masters, I would suggest, is that we can, we are, we can come to awakening, each of us, regardless of our situations. Now, there are areas in life where we have real limitations. I have to say that. So, for example, it doesn't matter how much I practice I finally come to realize I'm not gonna get in the NBA. It's just not gonna happen. It doesn't matter how much I practice, I'm looking at James. (laughs) I don't know why, but I was. (laughs) We talk basketball sometimes. That's a real limitation. I'm never gonna run a four minute mile. Right, that's that's real. I'm not gonna be a musical genius like a Mozart because I just don't have that. doesn't mean I can't learn to pl- to play music, right? There's certain real, I don't have the mind. I was an engineer, I think I have a good mind, but I'm not gonna be like the world most brilliant physicist. I just don't have that kind of mind. We all have real limitations in the world for sure. Right? But in the areas of wisdom, compassion, these quali- dharma qualities of the hearts and mind, there are actually no limitations. For That is literally true. We create an illusion of limitations in those areas. I can't do it, I won't do it, and we believe it, and we kind of incarnate that belief. And we don't realize it's like uh, walking under a shade of a tree, and then we complain of being oppressed by the shade. And we didn't realize that we stepped under, we can walk out into the sunshine. It's a belief that yes, we have to do our work. These are conditioned patterns. Remember the oil tanker image. There are no limitations. Um, And actually the good news is, what that means is, the only areas in which we do have limitations are in the ways of the world. All the causes and conditions of our minds and bodies. Those are all the areas that can be satisfying in a moment but are not ultimately going to be satisfying anyway because because they're destined to change. But in the areas that... Are not, those are the areas that are not capable of ultimately being satisfying. In the areas that it actually can provide us a reliable refuge, we talk about Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, these Dharma qualities, that's good news. Those are the areas where actually uh, there are no limitations, right? there's a lot of water imagery in the old polytexts It's beautiful imagery um, the jhana similes if you go read them so the, we talked we haven't gotten into I, I, I don't I wasn't here when when uh, for a temple's talk, but uh, so I didn't actually hear that. So he did speak, I understand, about jhana. But if you go, I don't know if maybe you read some of the texts, I don't know. But if you go read in the Pali texts, uh, there's the definitions of jhanas given there, standard phrases. And then about half the time as it appears in the suttas, it's accompanied by what are called similes for each of the four jhanas. There's a, and it's water. Um, well, there's a lot of, it's not all, but it's a lot of water imagery in there. It's quite beautiful and quite accurate, and it helps us to understand both the, uh, uh, what the nature of Johnny is and actually the way uh, uh, in there. So there's that. There's images of cross, this Dharma practice as being crossing f- to the safety from the near to the far shore. Uh, there's a lot of water imagery in there. One of the images of water that I love... Um, very dear to me is the image of entering the stream. Some of you may know this image, but the idea of entering the stream is that we have so thoroughly steeped ourselves in Dharma. It's become so inculcated in us. We're just so, it's just in our DNA, our cells, our bones, whatever. That there's no turning back, no way to turn back. Doesn't mean you never have any bumps along the way, but we're and and it's sort of like if you take a big river. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. We call it the Bluff City. It's on these bluffs overlooking the Mississippi River. And if you've ever never seen the Mississippi River, it's one of the world's. You know, it's like a mile across or something like that, and it's huge and just the power of it. There, it's big, and so that you can imagine if you went out into the uh, middle of the river it's go- the power of it is going to carry you it's like the power of the stream of dharma so that's kind of the idea of entering the stream right? um, and actually using that same image of the Mississippi River if you were out in the middle of it it would not be easy to get out of it because <laughs> the power is pulling you in it's in its way Each of us are in our process, I would say, of entering the stream. And what I mean by that, we're walking up, we're all, whatever, some of us are dipping, testing the water, some of us are dipping our toe in, some of us are kind of putting our foot in and out, some of us are wading in, some of us are whatever, I'm not comparing anyone, I'm just saying we have our own relationship with it, but we're all in the process of entering the stream and heading right out into the the deep moving water that can carry us. We're all in the process of moving the stream, entering the stream. Now what is true if um, um, you enter a big river like the Mississippi River? What's What's that Mississippi River doing? It's going to the ocean, right? Is anything else possible when you've entered that stream? This is a, let's see, double negative. It's not possible that you won't reach the ocean if you're out in the middle of the river, right? Only one thing's possible. As we enter the stream of the Dharma, there is only one thing possible. We're heading toward greater freedom, greater awareness, greater liberation. It is the only thing that's possible. This is what we're doing here. Now we have to keep in mind, though, that... I've flown over the Mississippi River and even a big river like that, it actually has some places where it's, it's heading kind of meandering south and it takes bends and it can actually bend completely around. There's been earthquakes over millennia or I don't know how many thousands, millions of years that have changed the course. So it's got these places where it's heading south, bends around to the north and then eventually... Bends back around, hits the south, but we know eventually it does end to the t- go all the way south, comes down at New Orleans, out to the Mississippi, out to the ocean. If we're out in the middle of that uh, river and we're paddling along, and we don't have the big view because we're more in it, and we've got our compass and we're going along. Yep, yep, heading south this is good. <laughs> yep, yep, going south keep going all of a sudden it's like wait a minute (laughs) I'm not going south at all I'm going north the actual wrong direction but I don't see can't life be that way sometimes we're heading and then we can go through and we're kind of it can be like that or feel like that around but we can't see we need the patience the paramis right patience and these good qualities to carry us and sometimes that can be hard and we can get we know that but we have to remember That we're in a path that heads only one way. That's the point. Dharma heads in only one direction, and so when we give ourselves over to this, and really, and sort of, I want to go back to that idea of stepping into our important place as the living link in the chain, not only for ourselves but as a service to those who uh, a, a, a respect and honor those who've come before us and a great service for those who come after us. Maybe the greatest service, you could say. we got to remember, Not you've got to take the bigger view and then we need a patience. And we know that it's going to come back around and head to the South, right? It can only only go away. So I just wanted to offer some reflections like this this evening. Um, just I find a lot of inspi- inspiration from the great masters, just reflecting in this way. I, you can see if it helps inspire you when you're flying. Again, recognizing that they were, we don't want to be disrespectful, and we do hold them up, rightfully so. But we also want to do that in the way that doesn't make it remote from us, inaccessible to us, that, oh, that could never be me. We want to, again, it's not ego, it's actually humbling. Right? But to know it's touching into something deeper in us that's alive, and if we can touch. So when we go back to where the Buddha is alive, I don't know if you can see where I'm touching that's me. For you, you you know, you can, some of you are actually touching there. That's where the Buddha lives, right? It's not a little um, brown and black flecks in the bowl, right? And even these beautiful images up here, which can be so inspiring, and I I have a lot of appreciation for them, they're pointing you back to where the Dharma is alive. for each of us so thank you for your kind attention Um, I've ended just about 20 after and what I'd like to do is just we'll we'll ring the bell and have a little extra time for the walking period but I'd like to just ring the bell and maybe take a couple of minutes to sit silently together um, and then I'll ring the bell to uh, Uh, to end the period. through the power of our sincere intentions and aspirations, may we be inspired, motivated toward wise and skillful actions. And through our wholesome, our good actions, may we be, as the Buddha said, may we be a light in the world. May each of us be a force leading towards less suffering, in this world for ourselves and others. And may each of us be a force leading to greater happiness, greater well-being for ourselves and for others. So it's 8.23, so you'll have a little extra time, and then for those who will come back for the uh, 9 o'clock sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.